0: Definitely, well let's continue. We uh, finished 25, at least a little bit. Number 26. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to observe ethical restraint. Uh, the word there is is sila. Um, without the slightest intention of continuing in samsaric existence for lacking discipline one will, ne- will never secure even one's own well-being and so any thought of bringing benefit to others would be absurd. So, uh, as I've m- mentioned maybe uh, too many times, but I, I keep mentioning, it, it's really important. The path of liberation uh, for 2,500 years has not just been meditation, but actually has an order. Uh, virtue and ethics, mental concentration. That's nah, not, that's the wrong word. Mental unity the experience of mental unity, what we call meditation. And then the third is wisdom, insight, profound insight. So here uh, they're saying that if you don't have the ethical qualities, then your well-being will be disturbed and uh, even thinking about helping others will be disturbed. So uh, one of the foundations of all practice is really high ethical conduct because it, it, it just damages too much if you, if you don't. Bless you. So sitting in meditation means you're also sitting in your ethics. Don't, don't think that whenever you sit in meditation, you're separate from your history. You're not separate from your history. It all prints out. So occasionally you have a really good meditation. But, but when, one, when one breaks good ethics, it prints out in the nervous system, which means the nervous system has a much harder time to settle, and it's also causing harm. And even the idea of you can you can sit in meditation and go, God, I love everybody. Right? Isn't that, it's easy to do, isn't it? I love everybody. But how you communicate with them and what you do with your body after the session tells you everything about your meditative realization. That's the test. The test is not whether you can meditate. The, the test is what you, you do outside the meditation. And Namjur Rinpoche was absolutely draconian. You know draconian? On this. Hmm? What? Dr- draconian. Yes. Acting like a devil hmm. on this point. Setting situations up to see how you'd react just after you meditated, mm. even, after the middle, even at the end of a retreat, testing you to see how stable your ethics and your concentration mm. and your insight is right in the middle or after retreat, breaking the retreat. Now, what would you do? Hmm? What would you do? Oh, like being in the middle of a retreat, and he'd stand behind a door with a lemon wedge. And he he developed on one trip the ability to squirt lemon in a direct directional, from a lemon wedge. <laughs> you know, after three months and getting lemon wedges all the time, you, you get good at this. Just like this, and you could be sitting having a meal, and you could do it right across the table. See? So how are you going to react? Here you are. You're very holy. You're meditating. How are you <laughs> reacting? Or uh, um, I could go on. Or, or all of a sudden. You're, you're now doing a deep retreat, and you're doing nothing now but looking up travel, um, travel uh, stuff, and on the phone trying to figure out boats and airplanes and hotels for two days and you know, this kind of thing. Or, or you're in the middle of a dark retreat. This is what he did to me. <laughs> he wanted to give me the kala chakra initiation. I just received it from the Dalai Lama. But he wanted to give it a, a special kala chakra initiation. So I was going to do a dark retreat on kala chakra, and he said, okay. But uh, four days in, I want you to come out and set up the shrine, because I'm going to give a special empowerment to Chakra and give special teachings for you and a few others. So here I come out. I'm in deep, going deeper and deeper and deeper into the dark retreat, and then I, I get a knock. There's a knock outside. You have to set up the the, the shrine, so I have to get in the car and drive <laughs> and set it up. Sure. <laughs> come back and come back the next day for the teachings. And he had a smile on his face. So how you doing? <laughs> So this this was or the end of a three month retreat, silent retreat. He shows up, gives an empowerment and he says, Come here. Right after the empowerment says, Come here. So yes? He says, We're going to Niagara Falls in about a half an hour. Um, why don't you get in the car with us and go to Niagara Falls? I've just in the middle I'm just finishing a three month retreat. I haven't even come out of it. He says, Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. How long would it take you to get your bags? <laughs> twenty minutes. Gotta to run to the cab and come back. Good, you got twenty minutes. We're getting in the car and we're going to Niagara Falls. So three months silent retreat. And he'd look back at me and say, how you doing? <laughs> like, how you doing? <laughs> Fine, sir. <laughs> so testing, testing, testing. It's, it's, it's not how well you said you did in your retreat. It's how you actually engage, how you manifest it. Okay, so this is everything to do with ethics. So if you don't know what ethics is, uh, take a look at the handout. On the th- I don't have enough time to go through it uh, with you uh, today, but look at the 37 Factors of Enlightenment. They're considered the global unification of all the ethical, virtuous qualities you could bring to bear in your being. And we, we work on perfecting, or perfecting, um, really getting good at all of those. It's the, it's the, the last handout. Last, last. handout. And the last and the part. Part. Yeah. Yes. I don't have the, uh, no. Oh. Do we have an, another copy? We didn't have a copy yesterday, though? They only came in this. There was this, this, is this. or this, or here, no? No, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Could be. Yeah, but we just did the extra one yesterday. We only had 20 minutes before the first shot, so we just did the brief. OK, so we'll I'll yeah. have those? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and there's some commentary on, on, on each one of them. Those 37. Uh, our standard curriculum of uh, should be standard curriculum of any Buddhist practitioner, whether in Southeast Asia, Tibet, China, um, uh, Japan, doesn't matter. They're, they're what is taught in the corpus of all the teachings of what one brings together, whether it's meditation, whether it's the precepts of ethical conduct and so on. So uh, this, this is essential. Number 27, the practice, I, I could go spend half an hour on that, but I'm going to move ahead. Number 27, the practice of all the bodhisattvas is to cultivate patience, free from any trace of animosity towards anyone at all, since any potential source of harm is like a priceless treasure. Uh, it's, uh, it's a priceless treasure to you as dharma food. Yeah to the bodhisattva who is eager to enjoy a wealth uh, sorry a wealth of virtue. So what this means is you not only want to practice patience when everything is good you also want to practice patience when everything is rotten and difficult. That's it. so and there's a, there's a relationship the the ancient texts are really clear on this there's a relationship between loving kindness and patience. There's a relationship between anger, frustration and hatred and patience. So it's not just about being patient, it's about the nervous system and the mind being, I'm not going to separate them, being able to follow through with something that you conceive to do. Very important. Otherwise you don't have the strength and the love to stay on the the study or the interest long enough to fulfill it. It's very important. So really, a way of saying patience is, does one have enough interest to ripen what you do? This is a very difficult um, point with many practitioners. There's not the love, the interest, to fulfill whatever, what what they're doing. And when it comes to dharma, it's a deep, deep study and practice And the question is, do you have the love of fulfilling these qualities or not? So that is why. And what stands in the way is frustration, uh, anger and 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 rage. So the greater the patience, the less the rage and anger. um, Both towards uh, uh, others and towards oneself, of course, Interfering with one's patients and testing one's patients is excellent dharma food. Excellent dharma food. Another great, tr- another, another great quality of Namjur Rinpoche. <laughs> How to interfere with your, your study and make sure that you get it done and ask you why you're not doing it at 4 o'clock in the morning. Okay. So it builds great strength. Number twenty eight, the practice of all the Bodhisattvas is to strive with enthusiastic diligence, which is very similar to patience. The source of all good qualities when working for the sake of all who live. Seeing that even shravakas and prachekabuddhas who labor for themselves alone exert themselves as if urgently trying to extinguish fires upon their heads. So shravakas and Prachika Buddhas are Sanskrit words that mean, uh, um, straukas are people that, that liberate through hearing the dharma. And they practice for their own liberation, not for others. Okay. And pracheka Buddhas are uh, beings that apparently spontaneously in a life don't fully awaken, but awaken to some realization of emptiness, but practice for themselves. They're usually very good examples, but they're usually very lousy teachers. They can't teach the Dharma, but they can actually remain in a state of absorption on emptiness. Um, it's because they had teachers in the past, and now it suddenly ripens in a lifetime without, without a teacher. So it is said that um, if, one, if one doesn't have a teacher and a curriculum, of emptiness and compassion, you may discover emptiness, but it's very, very hard to discover vast compassion without training. Very, very hard to do. Um, So the feeling like one has a fire on one's head and one has to really engage in liberation for oneself and others is enthusiastic uh, diligence. In other words, you know how limited your time is. You don't have a lot of time. None of us do. It feels like we do. We don't. We have very little time on this planet. And others have very little time. So uh, the the beauty of unfolding the Dharma, which is liberation and freedom, uh, is like having a fire on your head and you do want to extinguish it. Yes? You mentioned there about the compassion, the, the need for training. Um, I thought it was more emphasis on the discovering. It is. It's, a, it's an odd thing. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, if you discover real emptiness, you will discover infinite compassion. Theoretically. Most of the time, it doesn't work that way. So if you don't train in compassion from the start and you discover emptiness you're in trouble usually usually this is historic and it's happened to many people it's now very hard to train in compassion once you've discovered emptiness you just don't want to so that's what they refer to the Shravakas and pratyekabuddhas Buddhas don't want to engage in compassion why should I? I'm happy. It doesn't mean that you don't have love for other people. It's just you don't know how to ripen others. And you don't see a need. Next lifetime, it's okay. Everything's okay. You ever heard that? You know Buddhists are supposed to be like that? Everything's okay. It's all nice. It's all fine. Why should I do anything? Just be patient, right? That's not Buddhism. Nothing, nothing to do with Dharma. That's a weird concept. Are are these and are they they looked down upon in the Buddhist? No, they're looked down upon by some Buddhists. (laughs) In in certain traditions called Mahayana Vajrayana, they're looked down upon. Not because they're not honored by their meditative capability. They are pretty darn good meditators, but missing, missing the big point. There is a taint of self-ignorance, but there's not not looking for the realization of all phenomena. They've experienced the emptiness of self, but not all phenomena, and haven't spent. Let me give you uh, this. This book I have here is a fantastic book, just published, and I, I want to read. This afternoon, this afternoon's class, I'm going to re- do some reading from it um, because it, he's amazing. But Shabkar was a yogi 200 years ago, and in his autobiography, he relates a story where his, one of his chief disciples, who was, who was fantastic, unfortunately died in a river accident. But he was meditating for an entire winter up in the mountains. And he came back, his disciple, his, his, his student, came back after a whole winter of meditating and sung his teacher a song of realization of emptiness and could tell he was really happy about. And, and Shabkar said, my son, because they were like, father and son your realization is as good as your father but your compassion stinks it's right in the text your compassion stinks your dharma is rotten even though your realization of emptiness is good spend a whole year day and night meditating on the compassion and love of sentient beings who are suffering to bring about real dharma so so it is a danger, and, and I'll, I'll tell you personally from my experience that when when I was uh, 17 or 18, maybe between, somewhere in there, and Namjana Rinpoche, my first main teacher, found out that my first teacher was training us in Burmese Vipassana all the time, weekend retreats and so on, and that became my major discipline, was Burmese Vipassana. He was absolutely furious. And the reason he said to, to my current teacher at the time and myself, he said, if you break through deeply into emptiness, you'll be ruined as a teacher. It's be finished. I can't have that. This is, I can't have that. So I wasn't allowed to do any Vipassana meditation in that style. Mahamudra, yes. Deity yoga practice, yes. But, but no more of that for, for years. And even though that's my major discipline, in some ways. Is that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a, a specialist in that. But for a number of years, it was verboten, because it's too fast. And therefore, he was worried that I didn't ripen the skills and compassion as taught in the Mahayana and Vajrayana for the benefit of others. It was just too easy for me. He said, this is too fast for you. This is no-brainer. You've done too much of it in previous lifetimes. It's just going to come back too fast. That's what he said, actually. It's just too fast. You, you'll, you'll, you'll break through too quickly. So, he wanted a lot of suffering. He wanted a lot of suffering. <laughs> okay. Number 29. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to cultivate concentration, which utterly transcends the four formless absorptions in the knowledge that mental afflictions are overcome entirely through penetrating insight suffused with stable calm. This is a type of concentration which is called the unity of insight and tranquility. So the word concentration we've been using as translations for many years, it's probably not the right word. Probably the right word is mental unity on objects, not concentration. Unity. Mental unity has a different feel to the word concentrating. When we come to these teachings of Mahayana and Mahamudra Dzogchen, we're not really on about concentration. We're on about natural, natural lucid mind. And the reason being is that awareness is always attentive and concentrated on objects. We just need to find that. It's a different approach. So what's meant here by cultivating concentration is the word samadhi or dhyana in Sanskrit. And samadhi means sama, complete D, complete unity, complete intelligence, complete um, with it, with it. And it's a bit different than bear attention. It has bare attention, but it's engaged with an openness and intelligence and reflectiveness. So the, the line, that says, utterly transcends the four formless absorptions. These are the um, absorptions, meditative absorptions, of unity in space, uh, unity in consciousness only, not mind only, consciousness only. Uh, the experience of nothingness, these are high meditations. Some people just never have these experiences unless they practice a lot and have very good absorption and these are called the highest godlike states and the last one is called neither perception nor non-perception and the the one usually has to be trained in these but not always we can can experience them and so it says that this type of of cult, a concentration transcends these even boundless consciousness, boundless space, nothingness, and neither perception or non-perception. In the knowledge that mental afflictions are overcome entirely, this is called penetrative insight, through penetrating insight suffused with stable calm. This is the unity of insight and tranquility. There's no separation. So normally, many places, there is a separation between the practice of tranquility and the practice of insight. Uh, in this way of, of teaching, there's, there's, you're introduced that there's no separation. Mind is already there. You have to discover it. Yeah. Are those, are those the jhanas? It's referring to the jhanas as not being this type of concentration. The, the jhanas are excellent training. But at some point, you have to drop the jhanas for the natural mode of concentration that's effortless and completely natural. Um, it's really important. So, so this is a training of mahamudra. Mah- mahamudra. Yeah. Okay. And the reason being, let me tell you why. So I explain it to you. Because some of you are looking at me a little bit with a look of, so what are you talking about? If you don't find the natural mode of tranquility and insight of the mind in its its natural state, you'll always be trying to concentrate. Like do a thing, jhanas. You're you're always going to be practicing jhanas to get into a state. That's really good training, by the way. And it's been the tradition for thousands of years up until recently. But if you find through the Mahamudra method or Dzogchen, the natural mode of the mind that's effortlessly concentrated and sees the mind of what its nature is, then after that you never really have to practice concentration because you've discovered concentration as a natural feature of all experience. Do you you see the difference? Is everybody getting that? The The natural mode of experiencing all experience is perfectly concentrated. If you discover that, you can go into that at any time. It's always there. And it's not far out. It transcends even very profound meditative states because it's the avenue to full Buddhahood, whereas the other one isn't. But darn good training. I wish wish we had the time to train everybody in jhanas. I, I really wish we did. Um, because it gives such rapid results in insight but can get in the way. Okay? Number 30. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to cultivate wisdom beyond the three conceptual spheres, alongside skillful means, since it is not possible to attain the perfect level of awakening... Through the other five parameters alone, in wisdom's absence, you can have perfection in the previous five. But if you don't have wisdom, which is understanding mind's nature and the unity of, of appearance emptiness, it doesn't matter how good your generosity is. It doesn't. It's not it's not going to liberate. It's not going to really awaken the mind. So this kind of wisdom is is not just emptiness but luminous emptiness. It's radiant emptiness of compassion. So when it says alongside skillful means, it means that the wisdom is there for others naturally and the wisdom is used to bring about the awakening of others skillfully. So I like to use the Matrix movie as a, a metaphor for this. If one doesn't train in wisdom and compassion, skill and means of the way in which people na- uh, um, orderly unfold, the chances, are, the chances are that the only thing you're going to be o- able to offer people is a cookie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know the movie Matrix? And that wise old woman, when what was his name? Neo? The Oracle. The Oracle. That's who's the Oracle, but it was Neo? Oh yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Neo came for the Oracle, the answer. And all she would say to him is, Would you like a cookie? So in the same way, if someone comes to you and say, like like Christian Murdy, and Christian Murdy had very profound realization. But his students told me he he couldn't skillfully teach it. Bless his heart. I'm not beating up on it. I love all of Christian Murthy's books. They're fantastic. Because he had profound realization. But he never was taught in a systematic way of how you do that. So when he'd speak to people, he'd say, because it's fantastic, he'd say, look at the nature of your mind. (laughs) They're saying, but I'm suffering. Just look at the nature of your mind. There it is. Can't you see it? Can't you see that thoughts and activity and all this is really your free mind's nature? They, in the class, they go <laughs> like this. They go, "You bet." Then they walk out and they go, "What happened?" So he was offering them, bless their heart, Mahamudra cookies, Zogchen cookies. Can't you see it? It's there, everywhere. And they go, "Yeah." And they walk out of the class and go, "But how? How do I maintain this?" So, so, it's one thing to be introduced by a teacher to mind's nature. It's another thing to how to sustain it and actually, actually realize it for yourself. Make sense? So, there's an empowerment. There's transmission. And there's a skillful means to how to come to the realization of that transmission. This is what this is talking about. That's called luminous emptiness with the skill of the four Buddha activities. Peaceful unfolding, enriching unfolding, powerful unfolding, and wrathful unfolding. You need all those four. Um, and, and, and And you also have to go through it. So, if someone says to me, who studies with me, says, well, I've had some good experiences. Can I teach meditation? I go, no. Or then they say, maybe, I'm being asked to teach meditation. No. Why? because they haven't gone through long enough experiences and training so that when the person comes to them and says, I'm having this experience, they don't get bamboozled. Because you have to go through a lot to know what's gonna come next and what someone's going through before you're just having some fancy experiences. So it's not enough just to have experience, you have to be able to do something with that experience and you have to know systematically <laughs> how you've gone through those experiences. The good, the bad, uh, and the ugly. Sort of like Cleo Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Rinpoche is a bit like that. You go to him and ask him something that was really, go, make my day. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? A little bit like that? A bit like Clint Eastwood of the Dharma. You come to him with a real good one or something or questions. Make my day. <laughs> <laughs> he was tough. He wanted. He wanted high ripening. High ripening. Thirty-one. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to is to scrutinize oneself continually and to rid oneself of faults whenever they appear. For unless one checks carefully to find one's own confusion, one might appear to be practicing Dharma, but act against it. Or one might be be appearing to to be practicing Dharma, but actually acting in a way of Dharma, but not actually unfolding Dharma. So then we may say, well, I don't want to scrutinize myself. I'm tired of doing that. I've had enough of that, of beating myself up. This is scrutiny without beating yourself up. You have to come to a mature place where you realize, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying perfecting, I'm enjoying completing, but I'm not beating myself up because I haven't done that. It's kind of a very patient, looking without the self-immolation of the knives coming out. There's enough of that already. Hmm? The guilty feeling. Guilty feeling. It's really, it's really a vision of, boy, I'd love to have these saintly qualities for the benefit of others, not because I'm going to be a saint. See the difference? If you're going to be a saint, you're going to beat yourself up. If you're doing it for the benefit of others and you're enjoying seeing others uh, um, um, do well because the fruits that you've developed, and now you're going, I could do more. I could be actually giving more that's a really beautiful thing that's a really beautiful thing by purification so that means watching your speech that means watching your body activity and your language that means what are the implications of what I do say and think about on others not just myself and you say well it doesn't matter yes it does because once you feel interdependence you see that everything you do is actually affecting others and you could get better at it, like playing a musical instrument. So I like to give this metaphor. It's how I feel. We're all musical instruments. Could we learn to play our musical instruments really well? I don't just mean play, sing opera, but could we sing Dharma? So in Dharma, the symbol of the conch, if you look around, you'll see not just Tibetan, but all over in ancient India, one of the great symbols of dharma teaching is the conch. And that's the declaration, the sound of the ocean of dharma to all beings. Can you make music, dharma music, to beings? And that doesn't mean just speaking dharma. Oh, I got some good Sanskrit words and I'm going to trot them out. And I'm going to read you the four noble truths and I'm going to quote such and such. That's not it. Can you explain from your heart dharma because you're feeling that, like a musical instrument. You know, I think all of you, do all of you know this? Certain musical instruments, it can take you six months to a year before you can play certain notes. I I know this. Like the clarinet. The high registers on a clarinet. One note took me six months before I could play it clearly. Six months. And one day I just went, wow, that was easy. If you take that approach to everything you do, it's much better because then you realize it takes time to bring out these beautiful qualities. Somewhere in the suttas, which I can't find anymore because I thought, I'll never forget where it is, but I forgot. I can still see it on the page, but I can't see the text number. Is the Buddha talked about what he was really on about. What he said is, I'm trying to develop saints not just these liberated beings, not just these meditators. I'm trying to develop saints. And that's a long-term process of squeezing out every single good quality of a human being and not just meditators. So a spiritual teacher is not just looking for cool meditators. They're looking for people with wonderful human qualities and meditation. The practice of all the bodhisattvas, number 32, is to never speak ill of others who've embarked upon the greater vehicle for the Mahayana. For if under the influence of destructive emotions I speak of others bodhisattva failings, it is I who am at fault. So this is a cautionary note. Be very careful that you know what you're talking about, that you have the wisdom to, to criticize those who are engaged in a, in a, in a very deep path of, of a bringing out great qualities called the, the great vehicle, the Mahayana. Um, so it's, it's a cautionary note. Watch out that you think you know something when in fact you, you may not have the wisdom clarity uh, to know the whole story of why someone's doing something like that. You know, spiritual unfolding, awakening the mind is a long-term process where we go through a lot of changes. It's not something that just suddenly we wake up and we've got all these great qualities and they're perfect. It's not like that. It, it is it is it is like developing a great skill. So we have to be patient with our brothers and sisters and even our teachers who aren't living up to the standard of perhaps what we read in the Bible uh, and seeing our teachers as all the qualities of of Jesus Christ, because that's what we have read. So it's saying, be very careful that you have the wisdom to criticize when in fact, you may not know really what they're up to or what they're going through. It really should be the teacher that makes the criticism. Or your very good Dharma friend that makes the criticism. Be, be very careful. It's about judging others and not knowing the full story. Yeah. One more and then we're going to break for lunch. 33 and we've got uh, a four, four more after that and then I'm going to give some uh, more detailed teachings on uh, the breath of bodhisattvas. And first we brush our teeth. Not a joke. Okay, 33. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to let go of attachment to the households of benefactors, of family and friends. Since one study, reflection and meditation will all diminish when one, one quarrels and competes for honors and rewards. So one of the great diseases is teacher disease. Spiritual teacher's disease is one of the worst diseases you can, you can have. Meditator disease. Glory of spiritual accomplishments. Trotting out your meditative experiences for all to see. Getting into fights with your, your Dharma brothers and sisters because you know better and they know better. And all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, being in family and households. And, and being a teacher and uh, doing it uh, improperly. So this is a caution that when you go as a bodhisattva and live among families and benefactors, their view of you will can cause a lot of poison to arise in you, not because they're poisonous and mean people, but putting you on a pedestal, cutting you down to size, That's a common one. Let's cut them down to size. Let's bring them into our world, whatever it is. If you notice, this happens anyways. Uh, Be very careful about that, especially benefactors that tell you how good a Dharma teacher you are, how spiritually attained you are. This has been a problem for years. So you're really not supposed to spend uh, a lot of time getting involved in all that kind of stuff it's basically saying watch your conduct because society is going to play numbers with your conduct if you're not fully liberated it's very easy for your pride to get ballooned out of proportion it's very it's very easy to get into very sticky situations like promoting you like the need to display all kinds of stuff like that. And you may find that your study, reflection, and meditation will all diminish in being soaked in the concerns uh, of others that really uh, may be important, but actually may not be uh, as fulfilling uh, as you could be. And then you get into quarrels, and you compete, and you compete with your Dharma friends and your benefactors, and you want rewards and everything else, and everything spirals out of it. So they're saying, watch out, because it's a a long-term problem. Big problem, yeah. What what do you think causes this in practitioners who want to quarrel and compete for and GREED, hatred, delusion, pride, and jealousy. The afflictive poisons haven't been purified, so they engage in quarreling and fighting. It's normal. And it's called also civiling rivalry and it's normal. It it is a real art to stay out of it. But then you may feel that some things are important enough to fight for them, because they're actually points of contention, or very important points. So you have to do it skillfully. It's a very difficult, sticky situation when you're not the teacher of another person. But you may be brother and sisters in the Dharma. Or you may be in a family situation. Great skill. And a long history of serious problems arising out of it. So they're they're saying, we know what happens. One of the great problems is unbaked teachers. You know what I mean by baking? You know when you fully bake something, a banana bread that's not baked fully? Flat bed flatbread or a pancake that's got kind of gooey on the inside. One has to be very careful oneself and others of what I call half baked teachers that have some gooey defilements on the inside that under the right circumstance are gonna blow. So it's called power, sex and money. And family and everything else and monasteries and retreat centers and because It's gooey on the center. It's going to blow. That's what they're saying. It's going to blow. Watch out. Okay. Be careful. The best thing you can do if you're asked to ever teach is run real fast. (laughs) That's my always statement. Any student who says to me, I want to teach, I go, go back to work. You should be running. You should be running. Anybody who says, I want to give empowerments, which is karmically profound, like you have no idea what you're getting into with another being, I say, run to the hills. Many teachers have disappeared into the mountains, escaping their teachers who say them, <laughs> you go and teach. No. No. Because it's fraught it's, it's with many difficulties. Okay, time to break for lunch. Let's have a a dedication aspiration, which is number 37. So we kind of covered number 37 there. By this powerful practice of, uh, of hearing the dharma, sharing the dharma, teaching the dharma, explaining the dharma, practicing the dharma, may it lead to the cessation of defilements for all sentient beings. May all the suffering uh, vanish and be uh, extinguished. tu <inaudible> tu May all sentient beings have excellent relative happiness and excellent relative health. And may all beings discover primordial awareness, open up primordial awareness, realize primordial awareness, the union of compassion and emptiness as a glorious gift for all sentient beings. Sarvamangalam, sarvamangalam, sarvamangalam. Oh, you're welcome. Great text. eh? Wonderful text. Jewel.